This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Carl Truman has been a university professor, a seminary professor in the UK, a visiting professor at Princeton University, a bivocational pastor, a podcaster, and uh, other things as well. He's a dad and a husband, and he's now professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's also an old friend. We met in the early 1990s when I was a postgrad student in the UK, and he was a young prof at the University of Nottingham, and he had hair, and I had hair. It was a different world then. Long time ago. Long time ago. And he very generously invited me to help him with a collection of essays on Protestant scholasticism, on which I've been making a living ever since. Carl, however, has gone on to a distinguished career writing in print and online. He's the author of a number of books, one of the most recent of which is Grace Alone, Salvation as a Gift, published by Zondervan in 2017 and available on Amazon and in good bookstores everywhere. Among his other works is The Creedal Imperative on the Value of Creeds and Confessions, published in 2012, and a couple of wonderful books on John Owen. In short, you should read Carl Truman. He is on campus this week to deliver the annual Dendulk Lectures on pastoral ministry, and his theme is On Miles to Go Before I Sleep. If you didn't catch them in person or via the Facebook live stream, these talks are online at wscal.edu. Hi, Carl, and welcome back to Office Hours. Great to be back, Scott. I think it must be maybe a decade or even... 12, 13 years since I was here last. A long time. Yeah, I don't know, but we did an episode, and this we is did. season 10. So, okay. So that puts us somewhere. Might have been in season one or two then. Yeah, exactly. Case, I guess. Yeah, great. Well, it's great to have you here. I know the students are excited, and uh, chapel was full, and that's never a small thing when you can get students away from the library and... <laughs> Uh, and the coffee pot. and I assume you were giving them free chapel credit for you to be there. So. Donuts. 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 Uh, donuts. Yeah, yeah that's right. Truman and Donuts. Uh, we have a terrific donut place here in town called Peterson's. So if you really want people to do something, then you say, we have Peterson's. Ah, and, nice. uh, and then nice. it will happen. So you've lived several places in the UK, and you've lived on the eastern seaboard of the US, and now you're in western Pennsylvania. So you are a multicultural man. I am. I am. Is your head spinning? Um, no more than usual. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the thing about coming to America from outside is you're all the same, man. It doesn't matter where you live. There may be variations in temperature, but an American is an American to me. So. Yeah, there's only 330 million of us, yeah. but we're all no, the same. No diversity at all. Exactly. <laughs> So have you discovered anything about living in Western PA that is distinct from uh, living in Philadelphia? Oh, yes. They have the great, actually, it's a great British habit of having malt vinegar on the table. Uh So you can put that on your, as I would say, chips or you would say fries. And salads come with fries on the top. It's almost Uh as if to eat something healthy would be a sign of, I don't know, effeminacy or something. So they have to put fries on the top to sort of destroy any health Exactly. Make it really manly. Yeah. No, we love Western Pennsylvania. It's very rural. Both my wife and I grew up in the countryside. It's kind of going back to to our roots on that front. We do enjoy rural life. Grove City is a beautiful little town. Oh, yes. Yeah. I I mean, tree-lined streets. Oh, uh, yes. The campus is magnificent. If you've ever watched, you know, sort of campus movies from the 40s, I always think of that. When I was uh, on campus in 
1997 or so with your colleague, Paul Schaefer. We were walking across campus, and I kept expecting to see a young Ronald Reagan with a football (laughs) under his arm, you know, bounding across campus. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely very nicely designed campus. And yeah, it's a nice Western Pennsylvania town. My wife and I live a little bit south, really in the countryside. But yeah, it's a lovely place to live. And I was struck getting the... uh, Picking up the car from San Diego airport last night. My driving is a little less sharp now, having been away from Philly for eight months. And, you know, San Diego driving really made me think, you know, I don't want to go back to Philly long term. No, no. Yeah, it's a different world when you can relax a little bit and you don't have cars to the left and cars to the right all uh, trying to kill you. Well, it's nice to have you here, and we're glad you're situated at really a terrific school. We've had Grove City graduates here on campus, and they have been remarkably good students. We have very good students at Grove. Many of them are testimony to their parents. I always think that they're very bright and very respectful, yeah. considering uh, your typical student today. And uh, I was saying to Joel Kim, uh, make sure your recruitment guy comes to the uh, recruitment yeah. day. RTS, Westminster yeah. East, the other boys have their reps there. Get a Westminster Cali guy there. Yeah, we're on campus on a regular basis. So good, we have good, good relationship with them and we love their students. So if you're thinking about seminary and you're listening to this and it's, you know, 22 degrees outside, <laughs> right? It's 70 right now in Escondido. I can confirm that. It's the beginning of March and I think I got slightly sunburned on the top of my head this morning. <laughs> you did, actually. I can, I can, he, he's not <laughs> lying. There's a little redness there. So yeah. yeah, we want you to come out here and uh, enjoy the sunshine with us. Well, the title of your talk or the series that you're giving the three talks comes from a famous 1923 poem by Robert Frost. The title of the poem is Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. And the stanza from which your title comes reads, The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Why is this stanza appropriate for your three talks this week in the Dendalk Lectures? That's an interesting question. I mean, there's some debate, of course, as to exactly what Robert Frost is talking about in that poem. Well, it's a poem. Yeah, yeah, always (laughs) tricky to interpret poems. But I I think one of the things that isn't up for for debate is he's talking about somebody who doesn't have time to stop and just enjoy the woods as they are. He's got to be on his way. He's got to be busy. And I think life as a bivocational pastor, as a seminary professor and a pastor, was for me life of perpetual busyness on the whole. And one of the things I want to communicate to the students is bivocational pastoring is busy work. You're not going to have a lot of time to sit around and have beautiful thoughts. Every day has its specific tasks that have to be done. Sermons to be written, Bible studies to be considered. Then, of course, you've got your professional work, as it were, your uh, full-time job at uh, school, you know, giving lectures and meeting with students and then faculty meetings. And then you've got session meetings at church and counseling crises that come up and hospital visits and home visits. And in a properly ordered church, you were preaching twice every Sabbath, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. So you were doing all of that. Well, thankfully, I had during my time as pastor, I had very little in the way of hospital crises. So I didn't do a lot of hospital visiting. And um, I had a co-pastor who was also bivocational. So we were able to divide up the preaching. I took sort of the lion's share of the preaching, but he was a good guy picking up the slack for me and allowing me to do a little less than, than when I'd first started. So my life wasn't quite as hectic as you indicate. Except I would say this, one of the things that I try to bring out in one of the lectures is a bivocational pastor really has to decide where he's going to fail. 
because you simply can't do all of that. <laughs> so well, that's kind of important. You do have to recognize that you are not going to do everything equally well. No, something is going to have to give. In economics, a zero-sum game may not be a useful way to think about things, but in point of fact, human beings are finite, and we probably have about. This is what I tell the students anyway, about 60 hours in which you can be productive. Yeah. And then after that, you know, really it's a diminishing return. Law of diminishing returns, yeah. So that 60 hours is the zero sum. You have yeah. to divide that pie. Yeah. And you're not a spring chicken anymore. No offense. N <laughs> nor am I. I've known you too long to be offended by anything you say, <laughs> okay, Scott. Okay, well, so, uh, you know, and so there is just this yeah. basic question of energy. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. When you and I were in our 20s and 30s, we could do more than we can do now. And frankly. our 40s as well. 40s, <laughs> yeah. Those, yeah look, that decade in as well, that's gone. Looking longingly back at our 40s. Yeah. So. I love being 48. I was so young in those days. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have to sort of measure things and make economies. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I learned in bivocational pastoring was you are going to let people down and congregations often have an idea or a vision or members of congregation have a specific idea or vision of what you are capable of and it may not actually match up with what you are actually capable of and the deficit in vision can be a tough one. I said in the lecture this morning, it seems to be perfectly reasonable for congregations to expect the pastor to be there when they need him. Unfortunately, if you're a bivocational pastor, that may not be a possibility. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the things that struck me when you wrote about this, and you did some years ago, maybe 2012, I don't remember. Something like that, yeah. And I remember being struck by the essay, and you said today that your thinking has changed some. But I thought, when I read that, you know, I think Carl's probably right that that is the future. You're probably less optimistic now about how it's going to go than you were then. Mm. Well, you're on this end of your experience. Yeah. But in point of fact, we started off with bivocational pastors. Yeah. And yep. that's worth remembering. I've said to students many times, you know, the Apostle Paul, wouldn't it be great to be in his position to be able to say to the Corinthians, no, I could require of you to support me, but I'm not going to because you're not up to it. And I'm going to support myself. And how different would our ministry be sometimes if we could say to the congregation, look, I'm not taking a paycheck from you and here's what I really think. Mm. Yeah, uh, And how often do we hold our tongue? Now, maybe that's good at times <laughs> yeah, to be constrained, yeah, yeah. but maybe at times it isn't good. Maybe we don't say things for fear of you know, losing our jobs. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, there are certain things that as a pastor you can do to mitigate that situation. I never, for example, knew who was giving what to yeah. the church. Yeah, exactly. Now, you're fooling yourself if you're not aware to some extent of who's giving what and who isn't giving. But I think uh, keeping the financial stuff bracketed to one side is a great help. But I think you're right. And you think about the Apostle Paul and you think of the, in some ways, humanly speaking, the train wreck of a life he lived yeah. and the demands made upon him. We really are a softer breed. And I include myself in that. We're, sure. we're a softer breed today. We're not able or willing to put up with what he put up with. I think he's exceptional in church history. I don't think there are many Apostle Pauls. We've been through, you and I, I imagine, some tough consistory meetings or session meetings or classes or presbytery meetings or counseling meetings, but I have never been struck with stones, and I have no. not heard that you have been. No, I did have the 40 lashes minus one a couple of nights. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I have wished no, for a basket. I've been in some committee meetings where I wished I could be lowered over the side in a yeah, basket. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But my wife was 
Katrina was rebuked me on Sunday because before our worship service at Covenant, one of the elders stood up last Sunday and said, it's presbytery next week. It will be a wonderful time of love and Christian fellowship and friendship. And I burst out laughing. And she, A, elbowed me in the side and then said, what are you laughing for? And I said, I've been to presbytery. So. <laughs> it can be. So, it can be. It can. It can, I suppose. But yes. um, <laughs> it isn't necessarily always that. So, Well, you're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in western Pennsylvania. The town is Grove City. It is. Well, where are you relative to Pittsburgh? I'm trying to remember. Well, Grove City is about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh. North, okay. I actually live just outside another town, Slippery Rock, mm. which is a famous football team. Yeah, a sort of remote as it can be in, and, and still be civilized, I guess, in some ways. <laughs> but we're due north of Pittsburgh. Yeah, you're if, getting close you to Joe Namath territory. So if you, if you ask the folks in Western PA, I'm sure somebody will tell you about Joe Namath. So you described earlier this morning a response from one of the members of your congregation, I think, who described your bivocational ministry, or maybe not to put too fine a point on it, the bivocational ministry as a failed experiment in your congregation. And when I heard those words, I thought, oh, <laughs> those were um, sharp words. And you've already used the F word already, failure. So this is something that with which pastors have to grapple and about which we have to be honest. At lunch, we were talking about when to recognize when a congregation has failed and when it's time mm. to pull mm. the plug. Yeah. Uh, these are hard realities in church life. So what do you think about your time as a pastor in Philadelphia? Was it really a failure or what do you think? I think it depends what criteria you use. I mean, there's a sense in which the church grew while I was pastor, grew numerically. It peaked some years before I departed. It was smaller when I left than it was in the sort of middle years, but it was still bigger than when I came on board. It was financially a lot more stable. The word had been faithfully preached pretty much every Sunday, except when we'd had to cancel service due to snow or something during those six years, most of it by me. The sacraments had been administered, so there's a sense in which, no, there are key aspects of it that were not a failure. I suspect that what the young man was aiming at was the idea that my pastorate was meant to be a transition to be being able to afford a full-time pastor. It was it was meant to be a temporary thing, and I would step out when we could have a full-time pastor. Now, I promised when I took the job on to do it for five years. I actually did it for six. I stayed on for an extra year. But when I left, the difficulty of getting a full-time pastor was still there. A lot of the problem on that front really connects to local conditions. There was a very, very high overhead in terms of lease on the building that we use. The church I'm attending at the moment in Grove City, different, cheaper part of the country, has pretty much exactly the same budget as the church I left behind, with a pastor about to be called an associate pastor, owns its own building. So there's a way in which they, you can do more with the money if you're in the right place. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. 
Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll free. 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You and I serve in a world, and the listener may or may not live in this ecclesiastical world, uh, that's actually really small. Just for comparison purposes, there are nominally 16 million Southern Baptists. Mm. Really, probably something like 6 million. Mm. That's what Mark Dever says if you look at who goes to Sunday school. Right. Those are your real numbers. Yeah. Either way, you're dealing with a really large number relative to the world in which we live, which is the Nate Park World, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, which at best is probably no more than 500,000 people. Yeah. I mean, the OPC, I think, is about 40,000. Yeah, not even that. URC would be? About 24,000. Okay, so maybe between the two of us, we got sixty thousand. Yeah, maybe, maybe and, sixty thousand. Between three and four hundred thousand in the PCA, and, and yeah. there you go. And yeah. then you start adding up, you know, bits and pieces here and there. So it's just not large. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand that churches exist in time and space and history. And so in the early twentieth century, we lost a lot of our um, resources. Mm. We lost our institutions, and we had to start from scratch. And we started from scratch at the very time when Christianity was losing its place in American culture. So here we are, small, mostly congregations of 100 people or fewer and with limited resources, and we're trying to plant churches in urban, expensive urban areas yeah. like Philadelphia, yeah. like San Diego. And all of that is a recipe for real difficulty. Yeah. I alluded in the lecture this morning, clearly, uh, it's a sort of truism, say, don't want to criticize Jesus. Obviously, I don't <laughs> want to criticize Jesus. The widow's might. Yeah. No, 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 just let the listener understand. There's no criticism of our no, Lord here. But okay. well, I, I think it's a misapplication yes. of what he says about the widow's might, yeah. not to realize that big money's important too. There are fixed overheads, and fixed overheads don't get paid by good spiritual intentions. They get paid by cash in the bank. Yeah. And one of the things I think that seminary students leaving seminary can have an over-spiritualized view of what goes on in the church. Well, if you don't have the money coming in to meet the budget, there's going to be a problem. So a lot of the problems relative to bivocational pastoring, I think, come back to money and come back to giving. That's the problem in the culture at the moment. People seem to want a they want to drive a Cadillac for the price of a Fiat Punto or something. Yeah, that kind of thing. I think you need to you need to realize as congregations that that money is key to having a full-time pastor. Yeah, there are practical realities that yeah. we have to face in planting churches and in pastoring churches and in maintaining them. And all of this feeds in one way or another to one of the topics that you touched on today, and maybe you'll get to it again tomorrow a little bit. There'll be two tomorrow, one in the morning and one in the evening. And again, if you're listening to this, it's now early April, and uh, these things are all online at wscal.edu, both the audio and I expect the video as well. But one of the topics that you raised is pastoral burnout. 
And you and I both know something about that. I left a very challenging pastorate, a wonderful group of people and a great experience, but a very intense Mm. six years of pastoral ministry in a smallish congregation that met in a gas station that had been reconfigured Mm. for that purpose. Not something I would recommend, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we but, met in a bowling alley that had been reconfigured oh, for the purpose. Well, okay, <laughs> you win. <laughs> did did they, was, was any of it still operative? No, no, no. Oh. It was it was purely sanctuary by the time okay. we got there. But I would affirm for you that the vast majority of my time and the vast majority of the people at the church are great people. Yeah, great people. I mean, people give sacrificially. Yeah. They gave themselves in a remarkable way and continue to long after I was gone to the life and service and ministry of the church. But as a pastor, it all comes back to you in yeah, some way. Yeah. And I remember when I went off to grad school with some guilt, you know, walking away from all of that. It took me about a year to stop jumping when the phone rang. Yeah, yeah. It helped, actually, that I went overseas and the phone had a funny sound. It took me a while even <laughs> to recognize it as a phone. Yeah. So yeah. that helped. But I remember walking into a church one day and then – thinking instinctively, oh, who has the bulletin? You know, has it been done? Yeah. Is this been done? Has that been done? And then as I began to realize, no, you're not responsible for any of that anymore. <laughs> but it took a while to stop yeah. thinking that way. Yeah, I can understand that. My version of that is watching the rugby on a Saturday morning and feeling incredibly guilty that I'm wasting <laughs> part of the day. Yeah, you should be writing And then realizing, actually, I haven't got anything to do. Yeah. I can watch the rugby because <laughs> Pastor Jeremy, he's preparing his sermon. You yeah. know, it's him who carries the burden and responsibility now at the church. I'm at, so. so what do you think from your experience is if there is a solution or what's the way to address pastoral burnout? Because I am certain that someone is listening to this mm. who is either experiencing it, has experienced yeah. it, or will experience it. Yeah, I think it's a difficult subject. I think it's certainly one to be aware of. There's a very good book by Christopher Ash. I cannot remember the title off the top of my head, but I'm sure you can get that on your website or out on your Twitter, uh, Scott. <laughs> There's a very good book by Christopher Ash on pastoral burnout. Christopher Ash, an English pastor who did himself burn out at one point. And one of the points he makes in that book is that there's often no warning. You can get up one morning and you're fine, and the following morning you just can't face the pulpit. Is it Zeal Without Burnout? That's the one, Zeal Without Burnout. It's a short book, but it's an excellent book. I also, when I first took the bivocational position, T. David Gordon, friend and now a colleague at Grove City College, wrote me a letter saying, as soon as you start not to enjoy the simple things you used to enjoy, get out because you know bad things are happening. And I think I was getting to that point. I never burned out. But as soon as I stepped down last June, a couple of weeks later, I'm at Covenant in Grove City. My wife and I have moved. And one of the elders grabbed me and said, uh, can we put you on the preaching roster? And suddenly I, <laughs> you I just started to break out in a cold sweat. I did a little, started yeah. to panic a bit. And I said, can you come back to me after Christmas? I, I need six months away. I had actually two preaching engagements for friends that were longstanding obligations before Christmas. But I took six months completely out of the poll it because I'd lost my confidence and I just didn't want the pressure. I wanted my weekends to be weekends that I went to church, heard preaching and just spent time with my wife. There is a huge difference, dear listener, between being the pastor and going to church and going to church and facing the pulpit. Being Mm. behind it is one thing. Facing it is something else. And there are, you know, burdens in a sense both ways. But pastors don't often have the opportunity to go on a given Sunday and just participate in the service. Yeah. While I was a bivocational pastor, those Sundays where I was able to sit by my wife and take the Lord's Supper together were very special to me. You You do really appreciate sitting with my wife in worship now in a way that I never did before. 
before it was not a typical possibility for me. Now I know what a special yeah. privilege it hey, is. As a pastor, you don't get to sit with your kids no. and your wife. So, I mean, these are parts of the vocation. It comes with the territory. So, listener, pray for your pastor. There are things that he is facing that you may or may not know about. There's a high likelihood there are things he's facing about which you do not know, and he needs your prayers just to help carry that burden and to fulfill his vocation. One of the things that I think is a positive development is the rise of the sabbatical. Uh, we get them in the academy, mm. but pastors have not always got them. But now more and more sort of in lieu of uh, being paid decently, which doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. very often yeah. in yeah. our world. Pastors are getting you know a month here or you know three yeah. weeks here to just go away maybe take a class somewhere to be refreshed yeah. and to come back with a renewed vigor. Yeah, I mean, I give my friend Todd Pruitt a very hard time for the sabbaticals that he gets from his church. Oh, and where can Joe, we hear Todd? You have to plug this podcast. Oh, uh, Todd, myself, and, and a, a woman called Amy Bird do a podcast, Mortification of Spin. Mortification get, of Spin. Mortificationofspin.org is the website. There you go. Um, but Todd's a PCA pastor, and he gets a sabbatical every now and then. And while I pull his leg rotten on the grounds that he only works one day a week anyway, why would he need a sabbatical? <laughs> I agree with you, Scott. I think it's very useful and helpful. And I suspect, though, when a pastor gets a sabbatical, and I never, I used to get a month off in the summer just as a sort of holiday time, but you really need a situation where you can guard the pastor from anything that's going on. So I think that's easier in some ways in a bigger church where there may be a yeah. pastoral team, there might be three or four ministers. So there's always somebody on point when the one guy's off, because otherwise, you know, you can go away for a month, but we all have cell phones now. You still get dragged back into the day-to-day yeah. -day working of the church. If the listener is under 30, he, she may not have any knowledge of a world in which it was possible to get into a car without any kind of electronic communication yeah. and disappear for eight, ten hours and not have anybody be able to contact you. They were called 1963 Cobras, and if anybody out there would like to donate one to me, I will certainly accept it. You don't want that co that Cobra with no electrics. Yeah, you know? exactly. Send it to me. I, I've got a good purpose for it. So, so I mean, it, it, it wasn't very long ago. It really wasn't that long ago, but now we're obviously all connected all the time, and it really is difficult to get away. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, two more things I want to touch on before we run out of time. And one is an easy question. You can knock this out right away. What's going on in undergraduate education and what do we do about it? <laughs> well, that's a 20-second answer. Yeah, the great thing about Grove City College is undergraduate education is education. We're a traditional a liberal arts college. We have a very conservative cultural kind of ethos. So if we have a campus protest, I don't notice them because they're obviously done so politely. <laughs> no, they, I think at Grove, serious liberal arts education still takes place. In the wider world, gosh, it looks like a zoo. The university Craziness. really is in crisis. And so if mom and dad, you're listening, yeah. you need to be not naive yeah. about what's happening in the university. Yeah. And send your kids to Grove. It's the <laughs> exactly. one place, Grove City yeah. College. Remember that name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, they ought to think about it. There are a few really good undergraduate schools, but you can't just send your kid off to university anymore and think, you know, as challenging as it might have been in the 60s, 70s, or even into the 80s, that it's like that anymore. The university is not a place of multiple competing voices yeah. anymore. I think certainly that's the case in humanities disciplines. Yes. Sciences are slightly different. Big money drives the sciences. That I think they're more stable and sane. Well, but humanities departments are just 
political hotbeds. Yeah, we hope. But even in STEM now, <laughs> STEM is being politicized. And politics, you know, Marx is ruthless. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to infect color change everything. Reminds me of Alan Sokal's brilliant hoax, the article, yes. The Hermeneutics of Specific Gravity. <laughs> if you've not read that, look it up online. It's a classic example. Well, and people are doing hoaxes now and publishing them in ostensibly peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then when people do that, the hoaxers who are demonstrating what's happening in the academy are being punished yep. for exposing what's happening. Yeah. So it really is extraordinary what's going on. Well, last thing, because I want to be respectful of your time. You've been talking a lot today, and uh, we appreciate that. You'll be talking a lot more tomorrow. One of the things on which you have written, and you've written, obviously, a great number of things over the last many years, but that has attracted my attention is on what you call Big Eva. I've had people write <laughs> to me Big and Eva? say, who's this woman, Big Eva, that he's talking She's about? She's a it. former East German uh, <laughs> immigration <laughs> officer, the one with the rubber gloves, you know. An Olympic athlete, yeah. yes. shot putter. Yeah. That was my uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek term for big evangelicalism. There are some very big evangelical organizations that tend to set the tone for a lot of what goes on, certainly online and also in terms of big conferences, and grab the imagination of a lot of Christian people. And there's some good stuff there. I think we'd all want to say that big evangelism, you know, Gospel Coalition, for example, has produced some good material. The problem is, I think, that some of these organizations become self perpetuating industries in themselves, that their vested interest ultimately is in their own self-perpetuation and not necessarily a balanced approach to the truth. And when you live, as I did for many years, in that kind of professional Christian world, you realize just how much corruption, how much bully boy tactics. And, and we've and seen much. some of the fruit of that in recent years. Yeah. James McDonald, yeah. Mark Driscoll. These are not names that now particularly reputable ones because of the exposés that have gone on. Our world, the world of Big Eva, may not command the kind of money that you know Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and PTL and Jimmy <laughs> Swaggart commanded once upon a yeah. time. But it certainly has within its own orbit. Within its own orbit, significant rewards that lead to without putting too fine a point on it, corruption and bully boy tactics behind the scenes. And what I've always thought of as kind of a sort of feudalism where if you play the game, you get to speak at the right conferences. You don't play the game, wow, suddenly nobody's retweeting you. <laughs> nobody's referring to you again. Yeah, invitations begin to dry up. Yeah, they do. And uh, You don't so, get to play as well. No. I mean, my advice to young guys at seminary on this front was always, you know, burn bridges early and often uh, <laughs> because you don't want to get incrementally pulled into this. And, and I've had friends who've ended up really very damaged and almost nowhere spiritually because they had their eye on the big prize and started to let the basic humble disciplines of the Christian life fall to one side. And you are now a visiting professor here? I am. I'm a visiting professor at Westminster Seminary, California, coming out this summer to teach a short course on Martin Luther. Now that's fantastic. Because forward to it. you did your doctoral work on the English reception of Luther. English reception of Martin Luther, yeah, many, many years ago. And you've been lecturing on Luther for decades. Long time. Love Luther. What's the value of a seminary student really getting to grips with Luther himself or herself? I think there are numerous advantages or pluses to it. One of them is, you know, Luther's absolutely central for defining Protestantism. So issues like justification by grace through faith. Alone. Uh, alone. Sorry. Yes, I, I've forgotten I'm with you, Scott. Alone. Absolutely <laughs> well, alone. Luther added yeah. it to Romans 3.28. Uh, yeah. so. um, the issue of authority. 
scriptural perspicuity, the nature of the church, the nature of the sacraments. I don't agree with Luther on all of those points, but I find that Luther's contribution to be one that sharpens my thinking. You always learn when you read Luther and you always come away from talking with him. Right. If you're reading yeah. him carefully yeah. and properly, you're, you're having a conversation yeah. with him. You come away a changed person. Yeah. He's a big ideas guy and they're important ideas. When he's wrong, he's terribly wrong. Yes. But there is value, I think, even in studying the wrong ideas of a brilliant big idea person because it may well sharpen your own ideas. I mean, the sacraments. You and I, Scott, would disagree with Luther on the Lord's Supper, but working through his arguments over against Zwingli on the Lord's Supper, very, very helpful exercise and a good answer. You know, it helped wean me off Zwinglianism, if sure. I could put it that way. I didn't want to agree with Zwingli, but Luther lands a lot of good punches in his conflict with Zwingli. And the Reformed appropriated Luther freely. Yeah, yeah. You cannot understand Protestantism without understanding Luther to some extent because he really does define so many of the big questions. So you will be out here I will. in the summer yep. giving this course. So we're glad to have you here. And it's exciting to have you here for the Dendolf Lectures. And I know the students have enjoyed it very much, and we're looking forward to having you back out here in August. Looking forward to being with you. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.